Welcome back, everyone, to Get Real, How to Live a More Authentic Life with Dr. Barry Weinhold. My name is Ashley Ross from 321 Media. Dr. Weinhold, how are you doing today? I'm doing great. I'm uh, looking forward to this episode today uh, uh, to talk about uh, how to raise an authentic child uh, and all the research that I have done and also research I've read that others have done about this, I'm going to be able to share the, the, the golden nuggets, hopefully, of all that. Wonderful. Uh, so when we're talking about that, the beginning stages um, that you mentioned, that's about under 11 months, right? Anywhere in that, that well, range? Well, actually, from the time a child, well, maybe you can go back to conception, to when they are able to... Uh, walk or, or at least crawl away mm -hmm. from you where they begin to see that there's somebody uh, that up until that point uh the consciousness is that uh, mother and i are one or father yes. and I, whatever they are attached to they they don't have a separation uh, they they become that person and become that identity but then when they start to be able to uh, crawl away and walk, they can begin to explore the world away from that attachment. And uh, on the next two episodes, I'll talk about those two stages, first stage and then the time when they start to walk and crawl and start to separate from the attachment. Wonderful. But first thing I want to do is try to get understanding of what uh, needs to happen during that attachment stage. And I, I think as a and you might be able to comment on this too, is that, uh, and we talked a little bit about this last time, is that what I'm presenting is information if you're a parent. Uh, and, and even if you're not a parent, you went through as a child some of this. And so it'll be, it'll be like trying to understand it from two different levels. Uh, what I, if I'm a parent, what I can do and I shouldn't do, <laughs> what I should do and shouldn't do to help pervert, uh, promote and facilitate, uh, you know, authentic behavior in my child, my infant, and also what did I get? And, and, you know, it's very, very hard for a parent who didn't get treated as an authentic child to then also uh, try to parent their child in the same, in, as an authentic way. And, and so that's what this is about. It's about looking at it both from the standpoint of what did I get and didn't get that helped me or, or, or prevented me from being authentic? And then what can I do now with my child to be more, help them become more authentic than maybe I was? And that's a big challenge for parents. You want to comment at all on that? I, I can 100% relate to that. Um, I think that's the biggest challenge with being a parent is um, it's not that we want to fix all the things, you know, that went wrong, that our parents did wrong, because I don't think, you know, that was an intentional process, you no. know, no. Um, but how to break the cycle, uh, you know, that like you've talked about next month, you're looking at the kind of um, the, the generational things uh, that come with family. Um, how to break some of those cycles that, you know, we identify as, um, okay, this caused me to not be an authentic person. So how can I now 
fix that so that I don't pass that along again. <laughs> exactly. So the, the buck stops with you. <laughs> and and that's hard because uh, it means in the heat of battle, when you're in some kind of conflict or there's some kind of incident that where you know you have to behave in, in an authentic way towards your child to model that behavior, you're still battling your inner demons about what happened to you when you're there at that age. As you were pointing out with your eight-year-old, that happens to you. And that's very common for parents. And to be at least aware of that, that that's what's going on, is that your children are bringing up a memory for you that's stored in your body of what happened to you at, at a similar age, or maybe in a similar situation. Maybe it wasn't the same age, but the situation is similar. So it's it, it's it's uh, it's an opportunity for learning for parents. And so I always say, and I say this with great humility, my greatest teachers have been my children. They have taught me things about me that I didn't wasn't aware of. And I became aware of them when I had to deal with them with them and saw how uh, it brought back memories about how I was treated. I, I remember probably the, one of the greatest lessons that happened to me was um, I was doing a workshop near where my parents live. And my son was, I think he was maybe eight or nine at the time. And I said, oh, why don't you come with me? You could spend the time with grandma and grandpa while I'm doing my workshop. And it was a week long workshop. Uh, and so they would, and we went there a little early and stayed a little later. So they had, a, he had about two weeks with my parents. and so. When we were flying back, uh, I said, "Well, uh, what was what was the things that you liked the most about spending time with your your grandpa and grandma?" She said, "He said I didn't spend much time with them. I spent most of my time with my my uh, cousin, who was the same age." And so I thought about that, and oh my God, that must be the what happened to me. When I was his age, they just didn't spend any time with me, and I either spent time alone or with uh, kids in the neighborhood, and it just hit me like a ton of bricks. That that it never occurred to me that that would have been how I grew up. I didn't remember my childhood that way, but hearing it from him, it brought the memory back clearly. That was what was my experience growing up was I I was sort of in the way. And and so they didn't spend, they didn't do things with me. They didn't go later on when I was a teenager, when I was in athletics, they didn't go to my sporting events. They didn't, they didn't do anything that uh, involved my life. It was, they were so busy with their own. And, you know, I understand some of that, but it still had its effect on me. So, I can see that a lot. Um, my family never ate dinner together. Oh yeah. Well, mine did. Mm -hmm. Um, as best they could, but uh, there was no conversation around dinner. It was about let's get this over with as fast as possible. I I, I developed something I called the fastest fork in the east. <laughs> I grew up in the, on the east coast, and because the rule, the unwritten rule, an unspoken rule at the table was whoever gets finished with their first toppings gets seconds, and there may not be enough seconds to go around for everybody. So hurry up and eat so you get seconds. <laughs> and so I, I, I 
I often went, uh, left the table with indigestion. Trying I was going to say that creates some bad eating habits too. Yeah. <laughs> I had to, I had to really work on slowing down as an adult. Yeah. So today I want I want to talk about what are the basic needs for attachment and bonding that children are born with, and how to facilitate them meeting those needs. And I have a a, 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 a diagram that uh, uh, I'd like you to put up that will help me then explain it. If you can find that diagram, there it is. And it's mostly looking at uh, what should happen and what does happen and, and what, what to do about it. But I'll, I'll walk you through this diagram a little bit. And I wanna back up a little bit and say that the, the job of a parent actually starts at conception. And I believe that uh, uh, since fathers are the active part of conception, uh, they ought to be the ones that create a meaningful ritual about conception for both uh, both parents or both prospective parents. And and so that's the first act of a father is to uh, help create a conscious conception ritual to bring a child into this world from the highest level of consciousness, not something, some accident. Over half of the children born in this country are either unplanned or unwanted. That shouldn't happen. It should be a planned and a wanted kind of experience. So that's the first thing. And the second thing is, uh, obviously there ought to be good prenatal care for the mother uh, and, and, and the father should be involved in that so that he can be a support when uh, the birth comes. And the fathers need to be present at the birth and be part of the team uh, that are uh, doing that is there to support his his uh, spouse in uh, this very difficult and very painful process. And and so that's the other role that fathers have to play. That's extremely important because anybody that's present at the birth of a child is automatically bonded to that child. And, and that's important for fathers to have that kind of experience. And then I also think it's important that fathers, if, if they uh, wish to, uh, to cut the cord. Uh, I, I don't know, do you have any uh, comments about that? You're shaking your head yes, I wanna hear. I tried to get my husband to cut the cord, but he's squeamish and he couldn't yeah, that, do that's, it. That's, that, that's, that's a, lot of, a lot of men. I don't want to do that. It's just too, no, too, uh, too, too much, real, too real for them. Too real. Yeah. Too yeah. much. But uh, at least to be present uh, is, is absolutely essential. To, and then uh, the, uh, the research shows this very clearly that the optimal time for bonding between the child and both parents is the first uh, 24, 36 to 72 hours after birth. And during that time, according to the research of Klaus and Kennel at the Cleveland Clinic, they say it should be a maximum time of skin-to-skin -skin contact between the child and both parents. That means being naked in the in the bed with your child on your chest and and having them feel you as well as you feeling them. That what that does it activates brain cells. It's it's a great 
way to activate the, the learning capacity that a child has. And so uh, hardly any parent knows that. Uh, and so that the research was so clear about that. I mean, I've, I read that research. I thought, my God, the more people need to know about that, how important that is, because they just don't, don't, don't really consider it important. And then uh, in terms of the day-to-day, uh, I have uh, what I call the parenting wheel up there. Uh, and uh, the child's needs are, uh, have to be consistently uh, met in order for them to, to, to achieve a secure bonding. That means a lot of contact uh, through either breastfeeding or bottle feeding uh, with uh, the mother, of course, with breastfeeding and perhaps the father involves some in, in bottle feeding and, and, and making it, again, a team effort as much as possible. That may mean that uh, if there's a, a, a bottle that needs to be t- given in the middle of the night, dad gets up and does that, gives mom a chance to sleep a little more. And, and, and that first uh, couple of months are, are crucial for because the child has to build a kind of a, a sense of trust and safety. And the way they do that is that their needs are met consistently. And so at first there's a there's a equilibrium. The child doesn't have a need. Then the, the child starts to uh, have a need. They may be hungry, they may be lonely, their diaper might be wet. And so they, they the only way that children can express that need is through crying or whimpering or some, some making some sounds. Now, mothers who are really tuned in and fathers who are really tuned in to the needs of child, they know how to distinguish between a hungry cry, a lonely cry, and a wet cry. And they can then adopt, uh, 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 basically get that need met in the appropriate way. And so every time the child expresses the need, uh, uh, he or she expects that need to be met. And if it's not met, uh, well, let's say if it is met, then the child relaxes and the the nurturing, protective parent meets the need at the bottom of the chart there and they relax. And then they go back to either go back to sleep or they, uh, they, they're playing in their, in whatever way they put the, Child's play or infant's play is often a lot of peekaboo games and uh, other activities that uh, engage the child with the mother or the father. And, and so then when another need uh, starts to uh, show up for the child, they express again uh, the need for that to be met. And so again, if the parent is available, knows what the need is, uh, if, they, if it's a hungry cry, then they go. And, and make sure the child is fed. Uh, and if it's a, just a lonely cry, they spend time with them. And so if over a period of time, like months, this is met on a consistent basis, the child starts to feel secure. They feel the bonding and the attachment with the mother and then with the father is means it's safe and they don't have to be uh, worried about their needs being met. And, and so if, if that doesn't happen, uh, then uh, people start to develop uh, what is called oral addictions, substitutes for that. Uh, and one of them is uh, thumb sucking. And others is they, later on, 
the addictions as an adult are, are, are food addictions, smoking, masturbating, drinking, or, and, or taking downer drugs like alcohol or marijuana. But basically, uh, the main way to get that need uh, met often, I mean, other, another way that they, that typically, I don't have it on the list here, but another typical way, they will find a, 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 a substitute for a mother or father, and it maybe is a blanket or a toy or, or a stuffed animal. And so you, the child figures out some other way to get that need met uh, uh, temporarily, but it's never the same. It's never enough to, to really, uh, uh, really replace the consistency. And so if children don't get those needs met on a consistent basis, they do fall into what is called the black hole. And, and interestingly, some of my people that I've worked with who work in emergency rooms, and they, they surprised me by telling that many me that many people come to the emergency room and they say, I'm in the black hole. I, I was shocked to find that out, that that term sticks with people. And, uh, and so and obviously my way of thinking about that is that, that they're experiencing some memory of some time in the past when they were in the black hole. And, and it feels very much the same, or it feels as frightening as it might feel if, if you have, because infants are totally dependent on their mothers and their fathers to get their needs met. And, they, and what, what the research has shown that if infants don't get those needs met, they die. It's a survival mechanism. Now, obviously all of us got some of those needs met, maybe not all of them, but we got enough to get through and, and survive. I mean, the researcher Renee Spitz way back when, uh, when they found that in orphanages, these infants were dying and they couldn't figure out why. And mostly it was because the infants were never getting any kind of human touch or human connection. And they, they didn't have the bonding and attachment uh, opportunities that other infants would have. And so they died. And so what they did is they trained the staff to give them each of the infants more, pick them up and give them some, uh, some attention and, and some connection. And the deaths all disappeared. So uh, it, it is a survival mechanism. And it, it really does mean that uh, uh, children have to have that kind of consistency. That's no mean trick for parents to to pull off. Talk about that a minute. I, I think that's something I struggle with the most. Um, is even now that I'm home, um, it's still difficult to maintain, you know, trying to prepare lunch um, and keeping him happy while that happens. And um, there are obviously steps like uh, childproofing your kitchen and leaving, you know, a few drawers with safe things to play with so sure. that he can participate with the lunch making. Um, but, you know, all of those things have to happen too. Like that, you know, um, you have to do the childproofing, you have to prep everything and make sure that it's ready to go. And, um, but at the same time, sometimes they just want to be held and, and, um, it can be a challenge to identify like, 
you said before, um, am I spoiling my child or am I um, just feeding and nurturing the needs that they need from me? And, and society gives us weird cues for that. Just, <laughs> you can't. No, it's just not uh, possible to spoil a child. Yeah. <laughs> maybe, maybe later it could be. Sure. <laughs> not giving them opportunities to do things on their own and you, you become what is called sometimes a helicopter mom. Yep. <laughs> Helicopter. Guilty of that one too. <laughs> but, but at that age, you can't spoil them. No. And uh, I think love, how can you give too much love, right? That's a silly concept. Uh, a man by the name of James Prescott did uh, cultural research on on child rearing. And, well, no, he didn't. He did it on uh, violent cultures. He, he tried to determine what was the difference between a, a violent culture and a nonviolent culture. And he found two things. And the one that pertains to what we're talking about is in nonviolent cultures, uh, mothers carried their child on a sling in front of them on their body everywhere they went, even when they're preparing lunch and whatever they're doing. And that, that, that was a, a standard practice in that culture. And that was one of the characteristics that distinguished between Violent cultures and nonviolent cultures. He got in trouble when he started talking about the second one. Because in nonviolent cultures, there's very permissive attitudes towards uh, teenage sexuality. In violent cultures, there's very repressive attitudes towards teenage sexuality. <laughs> and so uh, he got in big trouble with that one, with, with many of the uh, conservative Christians and people that believe in absence and other kinds of repressive methods of trying to control uh, natural uh, curiosity and natural hormonal development of teenagers. So, uh, but the first one, I mean, how many, uh, I'm, I'm seeing more of this when I go to the grocery store, I see moms have their, their, their infant in a sling right in front of them while they're shopping. And that turns out to be an extremely important a way to, uh, to to accentuate that bonding, because that child feels your heartbeat, hears your heartbeat, feels you as a part of them, and and for them at that point, that's the most important thing to have is that they know that, I mean, they literally believe that that they are part of you and you are part of them, and so if you make them part of you by carrying them in a sling, you're reinforcing their natural kind of feeling at that age that that's that's what should be happening. I think you're actually seeing a lot more of that. Um, I noticed a big difference between when I birthed my eight-year-old to when I birthed my one-year-old. Um, my first experience with birth was very traumatic and he was taken from me right away. None of my asks were um, where I was able to take him and, and keep him on me um, were not honored. And um, I felt very uh, kind of betrayed about the whole thing, but my, my, uh, most recent birth was the total opposite. Um, everyone in the room, the doctors, the nurses, I had a doula, um, supported the instant skin to skin and, and re respected all of my wishes when it came to the birthing plan. Um, and you're seeing a lot more of, um, just mom to mom talk of baby wearing and um you know there's a lot more um even uh development into uh not 
mainstreaming the baby wearing, but like trying to, you know, make it cute and make it fun and make it something that moms want to wear and make it comfortable and put a lot more care into that, that scenario. Well, Frederick LaVoyer wrote a book a long time ago called Birth Without Violence. And he, uh, he was a Frenchman and he outlined what the birthing room should look like, what the whole birthing process should look like. I mean, with soft lighting, uh, music playing in the background, usually Largo music, which is about 60 beats to a minute, which is about what the heartbeat of the child is. And, and they can be brought into the world in a, in a, a nonviolent way and, and, a non, and a peaceful way. And, and so uh, hospitals have had to do that because many people chose to birth their children at home, depriving them of all that income. So that's one of the factors that has driven that. And I were, I've been a member of the uh, Pre- and Perinatal Psychology and Allied Health Association, and they have promoted uh, a, uh, I think it's called a, uh, I don't know if it's a mother-friendly or baby-friendly hospital practices that that hospitals need to follow if they want to be not accredited, but recognized as a hospital that 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 does different things that are not the usual things that they do in hospitals, which, I mean, even uh, inducing labor because the, the obstetrician has, has a golf date and he doesn't want to miss that, are, you know, crazy things like that can have a huge effect on, on the whole birth process. And so we're, they've helped educate the public about the needs of mothers and of babies at birth that many hospitals uh, have long ignored. Even the whole issue of circumcision, which the American Pediatric Association has said for the 20 years ago, there's no medical reason to do this. And, uh, and yet uh, it still happens quite frequently. And some of that's for religious reasons, but most of it is, is just because of ignorance. They don't understand the effect that the circumcision has on the baby. It's a trauma. And the baby remembers that no matter if they are anesthetizing. Earlier on, they didn't even anesthetize babies when they when they circumcised them. Because the, the, the prevailing belief was that babies don't have many feelings. They can't they can't feel that much pain. The opposite is true. They experience pain more acutely than adults do. And so a lot of significant harm has been done in just that area of circumcision. And I, I advise parents to, to really think very carefully about doing that. There's, uh, I have a, an image that I show sometimes and it's called a, uh, a circumcision, um, a circumcision bo- no, box holder. And it's a board, a circumcision board. And it's a board that they strap the baby to when they give them, uh, when they do the circumcision. I mean, why would they want to strap a baby that doesn't have any feelings? Obviously, the feelings are with extreme pain, and they're flailing with their arms and legs, and so they strap their arms and their legs to this board while they're giving, while they're com- performing the circumcision. So I think there's a lot of things that that uh, we're now learning about that bring us into the 21st century about how to birth babies and, and to do it in a more humane way. I mean. Even uh, I, I know a couple that uh, 
did birth both their children in the bathtub. Uh, water births are quite common in some places, and they're not as common here. But uh, but the I mean, it's birthing the child from a water environment into a water environment, and so it's the most natural transition that you can make in a birth process is from water to water. And uh, and yet and and actually, my massage therapist is a baby who was was born that way. I I knew the parents before she was born. <laughs> So I knew her before she was born. So anyway, those are kind of the things that I'm I'm wanted to focus on. That, and the next episode we'll talk more about what do you do when they get old enough to start crawling and walking. <laughs> that helps promote uh, uh, this sense of authenticity, and uh, and the most important thing uh, for the first stage is consistency and to be able to show up. And, and to be a, have as much contact, uh, either bodily contact or, or just interaction with the child, uh, playing, uh, making face games, you know, mm -hmm. or, or, or peekaboo, or any of those kind of activities that, that tell you, I mean, that the, cat, the child is engaged with you in something meaningful for them. And, and everything, every contact with you as a parent is meaningful to them, mm -hmm. both positive and negative. Yes. So yep. It has lasting effects, and we need to realize that. It's not something you forget about. It, in fact, it's pretty clear to me that, and the research shows this, that whatever attachment style you develop in the first nine months, that's the pattern for the rest of your life. Mm. It doesn't change unless there's some awareness brought to that or mm -hmm. some intervention through therapy helps parents realize, uh, uh, not parents, but adults realize that they're mm -hmm. carrying an attachment pattern from their infancy and they're trying to now apply it to their adult relationships. Which is why this parenting part is so important, right? <laughs> we need to do it better. Yeah. All right. We've been over a little on time today, but this yes. is an important topic. So. Thank you so much for the insights, and I'm looking forward to hearing how next week goes. Okay, good. Thanks. Bye-bye. Bye-bye. For more information, please visit the Colorado Institute for Conflict Resolution and Creative Leadership at CICRCL.org or click the link in the show notes.